0: various verses from Leviticus 16 and Hebrews 9 and 10, 11 through 14. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat, but in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for the burnt offering. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel, and Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering, but the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns amongst you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The word of the Lord.
1: Well, we are working our way through uh, the book of Leviticus, and Leviticus is certainly one of the least read books in the Bible. And one of the big reasons for that is because it's full of all these rules and regulations that are not just weird, they're bloody. Leviticus is full of blood sacrifice, and for many people today in our culture, that right there automatically disqualifies it from being taken seriously. And yet, people are desperate, and I don't think that's too strong a word. People are desperate for answers to help them make sense of this world we live in, um, the uncertain future of our planet, our political and social situation. People are desperate for answers to, uh, to find help with the loneliness, the anxiety, the depression, and all of the other fallout that comes with living in an increasingly unstable, crazy world. But even more than that, people are desperate for answers to deal with two of the most powerful and destructive forces that afflict every human being, um, but which also happen to be things that, by their very nature, compel us to deny that they even exist. What is that? Guilt and shame. Uh, Most of us act as if those things aren't really a part of our lives. We have a tendency to say, oh, you know, I don't really struggle with that. Yeah, maybe other people, that's part of their life. That's not really a part of my life, guilt and shame. We just tootle along as if everything's fine, nothing to see here, folks. We're modern, enlightened people, which means that we consider ourselves as being beyond things like guilt and shame. But even if we do talk about them or acknowledge them, um, we feel that the answer to those things ought to be a loving God, not a God of blood. And it's right there in the midst of all of that that Leviticus says to us, come deeper inside. There's an answer for you here if we're willing to go deep. Are we willing to go deep? You know, the first five books of the Bible are known as the Pentateuch or in Jewish tradition, Torah, It's the foundational story for the whole Bible. If you want to understand God, in fact, if you want to understand Jesus, you have to understand the first five books of the Bible. It's a coherent, unified narrative. And what's at the very center of those five books? Well, it's the third book, Leviticus. Leviticus is in the center. That means something. What's in the center of Leviticus? This passage that we just read, the Day of Atonement. And what's at the center of the day of atonement? It all takes place in this tent, where, which is the presence of God among the people of Israel. What's in the center of the tent? Uh, it's a section that's veiled off from the rest, and it's called the holy place. And what is in the center of the holy place? God. The, the first five books of the Bible, if you enter deep, into the first five books of the Bible, the more you journey deeper and deeper into the center of those first five books, it brings you right into the very presence of God. That's what's going on here. In fact, as we journey into the center of the Bible, it shows you the very heart of God because what's going on in the very midst of this atoning day, what's what's going on in this holy place when you go right into the center of the Bible, the very heartbeat of the Bible, what do you find there? Atonement. The Hebrew word is kippur, can we say that? Kippur. I feel like we haven't had a Hebrew word for a few weeks and (laughs) I've kind of been cheating you all. Kippur, in fact, the phrase is Yom Kippur. Yom is the Hebrew word for day. Kippur means atonement. That means Yom Kippur is the day of atonement. What does this day of atonement show us about God? And especially, how does it show us the answer to our deepest problems with guilt and shame? Let's go deep and find out by asking three questions. Why do we need atonement? Why does it have to be blood atonement? And lastly, how does it really work? Okay? Why do we need atonement? Why does it have to be blood atonement? And how does it all all really work? All right? First, why do we need atonement? Um, If you've been with us throughout this series, you may remember that this tent, it's called the Tent of Meeting or the Tabernacle, is the place of God's presence. This is where God dwells. Now, the tent had various sections to it. So first, the biggest section was a big courtyard. And that any Israelite could go into the courtyard. But then you had the tent itself, and only the priests could go in there. But then inside the tent itself, there was another smaller section that was veiled off from the rest of the tent. And that was called the holy place. What was inside the holy place? Well, inside the holy place was the Ark of the Covenant. You remember Indiana Jones? That's what he was looking for. Uh, That was a golden chest that contained the Ten Commandments. And the cover was a golden slab that was called the mercy seat. And on top of the mercy seat, that's where the very glory cloud of God appeared. And, and God is saying to Aaron, the high priest in this passage, that um, once a year, you're going to go inside the holy place and you're going to make atonement for the sins of Israel. Now, What's really interesting is the way God told Aaron to do this. It's actually an incredibly sophisticated commentary on the human condition. Let's take a look. Um, Atonement involved two goats, okay? So if you look at verse 8, it says, Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. So one goat was for the Lord. That that goat was going to be slaughtered, And then its blood was going to be sprinkled in the holy place. And I'll get back to that in just a moment. But the second goat, it says it's for Azazel. Now, everybody guesses at what that word means. There are theories nobody really knows. But but this is where the basic meaning is where we get our word scapegoat. Because what happened was Aaron, the high priest, would confess all of the sins of the people on the head of this goat. And then the goat would be led away into the wilderness to carry the sins of the people away into the wilderness. In fact, uh, if you look at the bottom of the second paragraph, verse 22 says, The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a, a remote area. That word remote area is a word literally means a cut-off place. Their sins are just literally cut off from the people. The, the scapegoat would bear the iniquities Of the people. That means specific acts of wrongdoing, which is another way of talking about guilt. What's the difference between guilt and shame? Many people say guilt is about what you've done, whereas shame is more about what you are. That's a very helpful distinction. The goat is bearing the sins of the people away into a cut off place. Guilt is about what you do, shame is about what you are. And atonement deals with both of those things because atonement means two things in particular. First, atonement means redemption. So that's what's going on with the scapegoat. The sins, the specific acts of wrongdoing, the, the specific guilty actions that have been done by the people are being carried by the goat away into the wilderness. That's what the scapegoat does. Um, atonement means Redemption, because specific sins are being dealt with and carried away. Um, But atonement also means purification. So if you look at, um, at the end of the third paragraph, verse 30 says that on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you or purify you. You shall be clean or pure before the Lord from all your sins. Now, that's the first goat that we were just talking about. The one who was slaughtered and its blood is sprinkled in the holy place. It's saying that goat accomplishes cleansing or purification from sins. Friends, that's talking about our shame. Guilt is about what you've done. Shame is about what you are. And in our culture, we say, yeah, you know, if you've done something wrong, then yeah, we should feel guilty. But no one should ever feel shame. We say shame is always degrading. No one should ever be ashamed about who or what they are. This is part of our modern, what many people call our culture of authenticity. That means that that our culture says, whatever you find inside of yourself, when you look deep inside of your heart, whatever you find in there, you should just affirm it. You should affirm everything you find inside of yourself because that's your authentic self. You should never feel ashamed about who or what you are. Now, on the one hand, that's actually a very helpful corrective for centuries of people feeling ashamed about things they never really should have felt ashamed about in the first place. But on the other hand, to simply say that we should just affirm everything that we find within ourselves is far too naive and superficial a view of the human condition. Because every single one of us has this innate knowledge that not only is the world not the way it's supposed to be we're not the way we're supposed to be. Every single one of us, we recognize that deep inside of us there's, there's something irredeemably broken. It's like a virus in the hardware. And, and to carry that metaphor just one step further, it affects every single app whenever you open the app. It's, it's like every single human being has this inherent um, inclination to things like selfishness, self-centeredness, pride, cruelty, meanness, hatred, greed, um, envy, jealousy, uh, cruelty, brutality, even violence. So it's like, have you ever done something wrong? And then, I mean, just something really awful, and you wonder, why did I do that? Where did that come from? Theologians call this original sin. Modern secularism says, that's ridiculous, But there's a a British writer named Francis Spuford who actually describes this really well. He calls this the human propensity to, and I'm going to sanitize his language a little bit, the human propensity to mess things up. (laughs) Or the HPTMTU for short. The human propensity to mess things up. So for instance, why is it that... um, Creating better systems in our world can't fix the world. We've never been able to heal the world. We have better education, better science, technology, politics, economics, social systems. We've never been able to heal the world. Why not? For instance, Martin Luther King Jr., um, he um, gave his life, literally, to working to fix the systems of the world in order to make it a better place. No one ever did more than Martin Luther King Jr., Jr. And yet, in his autobiography, it's really interesting, he's talking about how he grew up in a very strict, fundamentalist, religious home. Maybe some of you can relate to that. Um, but then when he went to college, it was actually seminary, theological training, he says that he, he got exposed to more liberal works that really opened up his mind, expanded his consciousness. Maybe some of you can relate to that too. He, he began to believe in this liberal doctrine of humanity that um, says, uh, the essential goodness of humanity and believes in the the natural power of human reason, reason. And Martin Luther King says, you know, he got to a point where he realized he couldn't fully go all the way there. Why not? Here's what he says in his autobiography. He says, certain experiences I had in the South with its vicious race problem made it very difficult for me to believe in the essential goodness of humanity. The more I observed the tragedies Of history and humanity's shameful inclination, interesting phrase humanity's shameful inclination to choose the low road. The more I came to see the depths and strength of sin, liberalism's superficial optimism concerning human nature caused it to overlook the fact that reason is darkened by sin. Now, maybe you say, well, of course he believed that. After all, he was still a Christian. Okay? That's fair enough. Let me tell you another story. There's uh, a woman who was named Beatrice Webb. She lived at the uh, late 19th and early 20th century. She was uh, a socialist, um, an economist, a social reformer. Um, She was not a Christian. Uh, and yet she also devoted her life to changing the systems of the world in order to make the world a better place in fact she was one of the founders of the London School of Economics so this is somebody who was deeply involved in in the causes of the day when she was 32 years old in 1890 she kept a journal and she wrote in her journal as a young woman she says I have staked everything in the essential goodness of human nature and then 35 years later, after a lifetime of work trying to make the world a better place, here's what she said. She wrote in her journal again, um, years later, she said, now I realize how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts in us and how little they seem to change, like greed for wealth and power, and how mere social machinery will never change that. We must ask better things from human nature, but will we get a response? No amount of science or knowledge has been of any avail. And unless we curb the bad impulse, how will we get better social institutions? Now, here's a woman, not a Christian. And what's she talking about? She calls it the evil impulse. Martin Luther King called it our shameful inclination, the HPTMTU. It's in every single one of us our shame and our guilt are real. We need an answer, something to deal with both our guilt and our shame. Atonement does both of those things. And that's why we need it. But that leads to our next point. We've just seen why we need atonement. But secondly, why blood atonement? In other words, many people frequently say, okay, fine, we're human beings, we sin, I get it, we need forgiveness. But why can't God just forgive Especially, why the need for something or someone to die? Why this necessity of of blood being shed in order to forgive for our sins? It's just so barbaric. That is a really important question, and it deserves a a very good answer. Um, Actually, this answer comes in two parts, and the first part is this. Evil cries out for justice, and I think we all know that instinctively. Whenever we see wrong, whenever we see evil in the world, we instinctively cry out for justice. Now, think about what happens when you experience something, some kind of wrongdoing that's ever happened to you. What do you cry out for? Blood. Is blood, and blood is a very powerful symbol. When God tells Aaron, don't come into my presence unless you bring blood, the blood of atonement, That's actually a very powerful symbol for something that every single one of us instinctively knows. We instinctively experience this. And in fact, our inclination to cry out for justice when we see evil, we want, we need, we know that evil must be condemned. That instinct is so strong that that any failure to condemn evil feels like an even greater injustice than the original evil in the first place, right? Any failure to condemn evil is the greatest injustice of all. So, for instance, um, many of you probably heard of Botham Jean. He was an unarmed African-American man who was recently um, gunned down in his apartment by an off-duty police officer, white police officer, who said that she thought that she was in her own apartment and that he was a burglar. And uh, uh, you know, they originally charged her with manslaughter, but after several days of protest, that charge was um, changed to murder, of which she was actually convicted. Uh, many of you probably also know what happened right after that. At the sentencing of this uh, woman, uh, Botham's brother, Brant Jean, publicly forgave the woman, even gave her a hug. And then immediately, the whole thing went viral. People sharing all over social media about the black man who forgave the white woman who murdered his brother. Now, at at a certain level, I feel it's even absurd for me to comment on this because as a white man, this isn't my story to tell. But as I try to listen to my own African-American sisters and brothers, here's the problem. The rush to celebrate forgiveness for many African Americans, that feels like a denial of justice. It feels like, like a, a failure to cry out for justice because when white people just expect black people over and over and over again to forgive the, just, the injustices and the brutalities and the oppression of centuries, it feels like evil is just being swept under the rug. Because everything inside of us Cries out when we see evil in the world. It cries out for justice. In fact, don't listen to me about this. Listen to the words of Jamar Tisby. He's a an African American author, uh, host of a wonderful podcast called The Witness. In fact, he's speaking at Wash U tomorrow evening. He wrote an article about this for the Washington Post, and he said this: Of course, Jesus urges his followers to forgive. The risk of offering such speedy forgiveness is that not nearly enough attention is given to the injustice itself. Listen to what he says here. Instant absolution minimizes the magnitude of injustice. It distracts attention from the change needed to prevent such tragedies from occurring. The same Bible that urges forgiveness also urges justice. Instant absolution minimizes the magnitude of injustice, When we say, why can't God just forgive? We have to be honest with ourselves about what is it we're really asking God to do. Yes, we want God to forgive, but we also want God to pay attention to justice. So whatever forgiveness means, forgiveness cannot simply mean ignoring justice. And that leads to the second part of our answer. Why can't God just forgive? Well, first, because evil cries out for justice. But secondly... Um, All real forgiveness, in order for true forgiveness to happen, it means somebody has to pay. All real forgiveness always involves suffering. What do I mean? I mean, think about it. Let's take it at a few different levels. Imagine somebody steps on your toe, accidentally. Can you forgive them? Of course you can. I mean, it hurts a little bit, but it's relatively easy to forgive something like that. Let's go one other step. Um, Imagine somebody breaks your window. Can you forgive that person? Sure, you could forgive them, but somebody still has to pay to replace the window. Now, imagine that forgiving that person means that you pay for the cost of replacing the window. In this case, forgiveness means instead of making them pay, you're paying the cost. Do you see how this works? Let's take it another step. There are some things in our world that we consider so evil, so wrong, so heinous, that that we actually have a very special category for those things that we call unforgivable if something like that ever happened to you what would it cost you to forgive because remember what we just saw evil cries out for justice what would it cost for you to forgive something that the rest of our world is c- considers unforgivable because the deeper the wrong, the the more it costs to forgive that, the deeper the wrong, the more suffering that's involved in forgiving something like that. Because instead of making that other person pay, instead of, of, of cursing them or condemning them or punishing them, you absorb the curse. You absorb the condemnation. You absorb the punishment. Instead of making them pay, you're paying the cost yourself you realize what this means? It means that real forgiveness, true forgiveness, does not mean ignoring justice. It means a transfer of justice because you're the one who's paying instead of making the other person pay. If you've ever had to forgive something that deep, that wrong, that heinous, you know what's involved. The pain that's involved, the suffering that's involved, the cost that's involved with something like that. Can God just forgive? Of course he can, and he does. But we have to understand What cost is involved in forgiveness? Because real forgiveness doesn't mean ignoring justice. It means a transfer of justice. And God has done everything necessary to provide for our forgiveness. Instead of making us pay, something or someone else is paying. In other words, something or someone else becomes our substitute. In fact, you see that at the very end of of the Leviticus passage we have here for you. at, um, At the end of the third paragraph... In verse 29, God says to Israel, talking about the day of atonement, he says, it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, okay, once a year, you shall afflict yourselves. That means probably fasting um, and other spiritual disciplines. You shall afflict yourselves and you shall do no work. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you. God is saying, Israel, once a year, everything necessary to deal with your guilt and your shame is going to be accomplished. And on that day, do no work. Why does God say, do no work? Because it's a way of driving the message deep into their hearts that all forgiveness happens by grace. That all true forgiveness happens by grace. Do no work. Instead, he's saying, you're not going to pay for this. I'm going to provide the payment for this. Do no work. In fact, at the very end, he says, this shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for you that do no work. Instead, you rest, you watch what I do to provide for your atonement. And that leads to our last point. We've seen the answer, why do we need atonement? Because we need something to deal with our guilt and our shame, the HPTMTU. And why does it have to be blood? atonement? The answer is because evil cries out for justice, and all, and forgiveness doesn't mean ignoring justice. It means a transfer of justice. But lastly, how does atonement really work? Because here's the question we find ourselves with. Maybe you're here this morning, and you're thinking, okay, you know, I, I can begin to see maybe that this um, idea of blood atonement, perhaps it's not so reprehensible and, and repelling after all. That yes, every human being, we all have a sense of guilt and shame in our lives. And yes, evil cries out for justice. I would agree with that. And yeah, I can maybe even possibly grant this idea that that for God to forgive us would, would somehow mean him paying the cost instead of making us pay. But this day of atonement, it's a ritual. It's not reality. And even in this ritual, God's not the one who's paying. The goat is. What good is that? And the answer is no good at all. Except to train the hearts of Israel to trust in the God who would one day provide everything necessary for the atonement that we all need. Because we printed uh, sections from the letter, the New Testament letter to the Hebrews, in your bulletin so that you could see this. If you look at Hebrews, what, what it's essentially saying is the Day of Atonement was a promise that one day God would provide everything necessary for atonement. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. So if you look at chapter 9, verse 14, I mean, verse 11, it says that Jesus Christ appeared as a high priest. In other words, Hebrews is saying that Jesus is the real high priest uh, of whom all the other high priests were simply a signpost. Verse 11 goes on and it says that he entered once for all into the holy places, which means the very real presence of God. It says he went in not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. You realize what this is saying? I mean, think about all the apparatus that we've seen in Leviticus. You know, you've got this tent, which later on became the temple in Jerusalem. You've got the high priests. You've got animals. You've got blood. There's all this apparatus, all all these components involved in, in this ritual of atonement. Hebrews is saying that Jesus Christ is not just one of these components are one part of the apparatus among many other parts of the apparatus. He's saying that Jesus is all of it. Jesus has done everything necessary to accomplish atonement for us. Because Jesus, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I am the temple. In other words, I am the very presence of God dwelling on earth. And here in Hebrews, what does it say? That that Jesus um, is the true high priest Because he's the one who goes into the very presence of God to make atonement for us. But he's not just the priest. It says he doesn't bring the blood of animals. He brings his own blood. Do you see what this is saying to us? Jesus is the tent. Jesus is the high priest. Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus is the blood. He's not just one component or piece of apparatus. He's not one symbol pointing to a deeper reality, Jesus is the deeper reality toward which all the symbols and all the apparatus are pointing to and saying, Jesus has done everything necessary to accomplish atonement for us. Because friends, on the day of atonement, the priest, the high priest himself, he would go deep, deep into the presence of God. And part of the process was he would take a container And he would fill it with burning coals and incense. In essence, he would create this smoky fire that would prevent him from seeing the glory of God. Because if he did see it, it would kill him. In other words, the only way the priest could make atonement for the sins of the people was if he hid his face from God to get in there. On the cross of Jesus Christ, friends, Jesus Christ went deep. He went straight into the heart of the very presence of God. Jesus Christ faced all of the justice, all of the condemnation that you and I deserve. He faced all of that for us because Jesus Christ on the cross, (coughs) he is the ultimate scapegoat that was sent to a cut off place. Jesus Christ was cut off from the presence of God on the cross because at that very moment, he was carrying all of our sin, he was carrying all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of our burdens. And all of the, the, the justice of God, friend. remember what we saw, evil cries out for justice. On the cross, the justice of God fell deep into the heart of Jesus so that the love and mercy of God could fall deep into our hearts. Jesus is the ultimate scapegoat who was cut off so we could be welcomed in to the presence of God. Do you want to see the heart of God? Look at Jesus on the cross Absorbing your curse, absorbing the condemnation, absorbing the punishment for you. Justice, I mean, forgiveness means not ignoring justice, but a transfer of justice. On the cross, Jesus Christ, all the justice and condemnation that we deserve was transferred onto him so that all the love that he deserves could be transferred onto us. Do you realize what that does for you? What that means for us? If you look at Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14 it says the blood of Christ purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God it says the blood of Christ purifies our conscience you know what that means i mean <coughs> excuse me think about all the ways that we try to deal with our guilt and our shame or rather, we should say it like this, Thinking about, about all the ways we don't deal with our guilt and our shame. Well, you know, Have you ever tried to just affirm yourself? If you've ever tried it, you know it doesn't work. Because why? The HPTMTU, it's too real. There's a virus in our hardware. It's affecting all of the apps. We know not only the world is not the way it's supposed to be, we're not the way we're supposed to be. There's a virus in our hardware and we know Deep inside of us, there's something irredeemably broken, and we don't have the power to fix it ourselves. Just affirming ourselves, it doesn't work, it can't work. That, that when, you know, evil cries out for justice, that means that when, and especially when, we look at ourselves, we know that, that we deserve justice. And ignoring that, or denying that, only makes it worse. It actually leads to all kinds of dysfunctions in our lives. C.S. Lewis said, it's kind of like... Um, When you're getting dressed in artificial light and trying to imagine what the outfit is going to look like in the real daylight, he says we do something like that with our own souls. In other words, we look at our souls in artificial light. We say things to ourselves like, hey, you know... I'm a pretty good person. Of course, I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as some other people. I'm I'm a halfway decent person. He says, that's like looking at our souls in artificial light. The whole time, we have this deep instinctive knowledge that we suppress that if ever we were to come out into the real daylight of the presence of God, there's no way that we could survive the examination. In Jesus, you can and you will rest in that. In fact, unlike the day of atonement, Jesus Christ doesn't need to go back up on the cross year after year after year. Because the book of Hebrews tells us that when he finished his work, he sat down. That means the work is finished. There's nothing more that needs to be done. That's why God says to you and to me, the same as he said to the Israelites, do no work It's a rest for you, a solemn Sabbath rest for you. Do no work because on the cross Jesus cried out, It is finished. All of your guilt, it's finished. All of your shame, it's finished. All of your sins, it's finished. Do no work. Rest in what Jesus has worked for you. Do you want to go deep into the heart of God? Do you want to see the heart of God? Friends, you know, on the outside, yes, the blood may look repelling, but the deeper you go into the heart of God, the more you see the mercy and the love and the healing and the closure and the peace of God, the more you find rest. Do you want to find rest for your souls? Go deep into the life and the heart and the blood of Jesus. There's the rest you need. Do no work. Instead, find rest in the blood of Christ. Let's pray.